0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temen. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, September 15th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temen. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, it's Book Club Day, from a venture capitalist, a volume on how government can use innovation out there in the economy more efficiently. Plus, New advice for federal managers who want to get things done. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, recruiting has been a big struggle for the military services for the last few years. And in 2023, the Air Force will become the latest service to miss its recruiting goals. It's the first time that's happened since 1999. But officials say there are signs the tide is turning back towards more favorable results in 2024. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has more on what the Air Force has been doing to boost those numbers.
1: For the fiscal year that ends this month, the active-duty Air Force will be about 10 percent below the recruiting targets it's set for the year, and it hoped to add 26,500 new airmen to the force this year. Figures for the Air National Guard and Air Force Reserve are even bleaker. Those components will miss their recruiting targets by about 30 percent. Then there's another concern. The population of recruits who've agreed to join but haven't yet been formally assessed into the military service, the so-called delayed entry pool, is at uncomfortably low levels. Brigadier General Chris Amrine is the commander of the Air Force Recruiting Service.
2: Typically at the start of a fiscal year, we'd have about 25 percent in the bank waiting to ship, but in this challenging recruiting environment, we are looking between 16 and 18 percent as we go into FY24. This is a much better situation than this time last year, and that's what keeps me cautiously optimistic.
1: But Amrine says things likely would have been even worse by the end of this year if the Air Force hadn't already started implementing measures to increase the number of people who are eligible for military service. Those changes started about a year ago when, for example, the service reversed a prior policy that permanently disqualified new recruits if they tested positive for marijuana use.
2: We realized, with about three dozen states having legalized marijuana laws, that this was not a policy that made sense. Now, well-qualified applicants are given a second option to retest. Let's make no mistake, drug usage has absolutely no place in our air and space forces, but allowing a second test in the recruiting process is the right thing to do.
1: And in the past six to eight months, the Air Force changed several other policies, including a more permissive standard for tattoos and standards for body fat percentage that match the other military services. Officials say those changes alone allowed about a 1,000 extra people to enlist that would have been barred under the previous policies. Next on the list of things the Air Force hopes to change, give its recruiters more time in the field by reducing the amount of time they spend on administrative work. One of the biggest contributors to that workload has been the introduction of MHS Genesis, the Defense Department's new modern electronic health record. Because of its interconnections with private electronic health exchanges, recruiters can now see much more information about recruits' prior medical history. But combing through all of that additional data takes time. Officials estimate the time it takes for the medical portion of the screening process has tripled since Genesis was first
2: introduced. You know, I use this as the vignette. You're going through a medical history and go, have you ever been you know, diagnosed with asthma? No, I don't remember ever being diagnosed with asthma. But your record shows that you got issued an inhaler at some point, but maybe no diagnosis of asthma. Well, we've got to run that to ground to make sure that we have accurately assessed you. It doesn't mean we're not going to take you in, but we have to accurately assess. And so the more precise that... Medical history is, which is really what Genesis is about, is making the most accurate medical history. Now, you know, through that capability, you go, hey, I I now can see this. Maybe we need to, you know, we have to run that through its process. So the need for Genesis is absolutely, I think it's, it's, it's there. But that process to run through those things has lengthened. And, and that's the piece we have to get after.
1: But it's also not clear that running down questions about childhood asthma is the best use of recruiters' time. So the Air Force is issuing contracts both to have medical professionals take over the evaluation of those medical histories and to build a new system to automate some of the administrivia involved in the recruiting process.
2: That's all part of this new IT backbone. It's called uh, you know AFRIS 2.0. It's our IT system. Um, that will actually absolutely accelerate it. When we talk about how fast and, and what is interconnected, that piece of it is is absolutely essential to make sure that we can flight follow a little bit more accurately um, rather than waiting. You know, it'll, it kind of will be out there that goes, hey, instead of just going, hey, we're waiting a response from MEPS, we'll be able to track that through the system and then maybe have a more proactive, be able to, you know, push rather than wait for for response to get back in that processing piece. So the IT, the automation is essential in that. The medical contract uh, option is gonna be very helpful in that manner as well.
1: Then there's the issue of the size of the recruiting workforce. Amrine says the Air Force is relatively small compared to the other services, about one seventh the size of the Army's recruiting workforce, for example. To take another example, the service only has four recruiters in the entire state of Montana. So to help cover the ground in-person recruiters can't, the Air Force is experimenting with the idea of e-recruiters, who can handle most of the process virtually instead of face-to-face. That started out as a pilot program made up of five retired recruiters a year ago, and it's since grown to 21 positions.
2: And my challenge to the team is how large can we grow that? That is a nationwide, they take nationwide leads and then actually work those all the way to the point... Where we would send them to MEPS or get them uh, to, to almost to that ship point, and then we have a physical interface with the recruiter in the in the local area. the e recruiter gets theirs from what 's called our lead generation uh, office that takes leads from all over the United States and refines them because somebody may say i 'm really interested in joining the uh, the Air Force or the space force, but they may be sixteen years old, and they don 't know we, we, we need you to come, but it needs to be in a couple of years. Or maybe as you're getting close to 17 and we can put you into the depth or the bank. And so those two initiatives alone have really gotten after uh, areas or spaces that we have not been able to be in before. And I want to grow that and expand it.
1: Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
0: Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a book full of new advice for federal managers who want to get things done. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. My next guest is a former federal chief information officer who served in both political and non-political appointed positions. And he's got a thing or two to say about government performance in delivering on programs. And he's published a book about it. Former IRS and Homeland Security CIO Richard Spires joins me now. Richard, good to have you on.
3: Tom, always good to be on. Thank you.
0: And you have written a pretty weighty tome here on (laughs) the fact that government can deliver. And of course, that's in contrast to some pretty spectacular failures. I think probably most in people's mind right now is the horrible waste that is coming to light in the misspent funds from COVID relief, how much fraud, how much improper payment there was related there too. So looking at it from a positive side, what makes you write a book that says, government can deliver?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting in my time in government and also serving government as a contractor. I saw a lot of uh, positive things, okay, that were done in government, but I also saw some of the, uh, let's say, uh, negatives. And over about two decades, I really started to see patterns in what was working in government and Having also spent a lot of time in the private sector, I do believe you can bring some best practices in the private sector, but they need to be modified a bit for government. So when I left the DHS about a decade ago, you know, I always thought, man, I want to really try to help government continue to perform and improve. And, you know, I got this idea that I really needed to write my ideas down. And that's what really ended up being this book. And... And I've really tried to distill it, and hopefully, what maybe a tome. Hopefully, it's somewhat entertaining because I try to bring it to life through real vignettes. Whether those vignettes were personal to me in dealing in government, or whether they were learned vignettes from studying of other programs that did well or didn't do well. Or quite a few um, interactions I've had with colleagues and talking about what works in government and what doesn't.
0: Yeah, and there's a couple of anecdotes that are interesting. Somewhere in the middle of the book, you mentioned that you did receive a cut in the budget for business systems modernization at IRS. And you felt that was almost a positive because you could narrow the scope of the program rather than having it spread too thin and nothing coming quite out. Correctly.
3: Yeah. In fact, I take out that word almost. I think it was a good thing we were. Uh, I, I hate to waste money. And uh, in that situation, I'd entered the IRS to take over the BSM program. And in my first few weeks there, I started to really understand that we just didn't have the management talent. And this is a perennial problem in many agencies that management talent to oversight the number of programs and projects we had underway in modernization. So it's like, Boy, it'd be better to scale this back to a smaller number where we can really manage them effectively, show we can do this, and then scale up over time as we uh, right the ship. And if you will, bring in more and develop more management talent to oversight these programs and projects. And so it's it's a real theme in the book.
0: And I would say a theme running through the book is the fact that the continuity of the standing workforce just can never be discounted because you talk about the fact that political appointees, even the best-intentioned ones, find running a large federal bureaucracy is really difficult and they often burn out in a couple of years. And that's why we have this often short tenure for so many of them.
3: Yeah, that's right. And I get into a decent amount of depth about comparing and contrasting political appointees. And and look, I understand the system and, and it makes sense in that regard. But when you compare it to the private sector, like, you know, a simple stat, I mean, the average CEO of private sector corporation is in that job for seven plus years. That rarely, rarely happens in a government agency where you have that kind of tenure. And even beyond that, that CEO, where did that individual come from? Typically, they were promoted from within in that private sector organization, not brought from without. And the other thing, and I spent a decent amount of time at d h s where we had you know more than two hundred and eighty political appointees, including myself, at the time, but you know a lot of them frankly, were ill suited for the job they were in, and that's not against them. I mean, a lot of them were good policy people, had deep knowledge, very intelligent, capable people but didn't have the management experience in their background to handle the kind of management responsibilities they were given in government. Those are issues that should be dealt with. And I'm not suggesting we cut back on the number of political appointees. I think that'd be a naive thing to think we would do that. But if you're ahead of an agency and you're recruiting and bringing people in, you know, being very mindful of getting people that have real experience to handle the job you're putting them in is, would, in and of itself, make a significant positive difference.
0: We're speaking with Richard Spires, author, former IRS and Homeland Security CIO, among many other things. And what is the difficulty, or I should say how should federal managers approach the difficulty with more deftness in the fact that programs often have political expectations and political underpinnings, and yet the standing federal civil servant workforce is there to deliver services in a totally nonpartisan way?
3: It can be a real tension at times. I spend a decent amount of time on the book, a whole chapter about good governance, Tom, and really good governance drives good alignment and decision-making across an agency if it's done well. And I I bring up that term alignment because too often I would find that executives, sometimes politicals and a career, you know, they're kind of at cross purposes to your point uh, with each other. And that's very hurtful for any organization so, you need to work to drive alignment within an agency. And by bringing people together and the right kind of governance model where you've set up the right level of boards, you delegate decision making in the right way. These are large organizations typically. Even a mid sized federal government agency is larger than most corporations. So, you need to deal with this and, and you need to delegate and set up. Uh, I'm huge on portfolio management and governance because. We don't do enough of that in government. I mean, you've got too many things going right to the top. I saw this in DHS and spades. I mean, I was sat on the investment review board. We were trying to oversight 120 major programs. I mean, you, you can't do that effectively. That makes no sense. So there's a lot there on the governance side to try to drive alignment. And I do believe, and I saw it happen, that you can get alignment many times between politicals and career execs but you gotta work at it, right? It's not gonna just happen. You really need to work on it. And those politicals coming in need to respect and understand that these career executives are there for the mission. As you say, they're not there for the politics. They're there to deliver for the US citizen. I think that needs to be respected and championed even.
0: And maybe the best way for the overseers to handle things is to just look at the metrics and make sure those are met and make sure that the bureaucracy is performing in a way to give out those metrics. But the question then becomes, what are the right metrics? Again, to get back to the issue of the waste and abuse that happened in all of these pandemic relief programs, the extent of which is still coming to light, the metric was, well, let's get the money out there fast. And maybe a different metric, you get what you measure, basically.
3: Yeah, I have a chapter in the book around operations and, and one of the attributes for good operations is to define a comprehensive set of metrics that appropriate for whatever the operation may be. And to your point, I mean, it's rarely one metric and it's usually going to be a, a collection of a, a few key metrics in order to be able to understand what's really going on in an operation. And I talk a lot about then using those metrics and really improving your operations. I think that's another thing that I'd like to see government agencies do a lot more of is really work to make both incremental improvements, Lean Six Sigma, things like that drive the waste out of operations, but then also reimagine things. I mean, with today's digital technologies, I mean, you talk about digital transformation, it it may be an overused term, but it's, I think still an appropriate one where we really can reimagine what you can do today. And too many agencies for cultural reasons, mainly, in, in my view, they're not aggressive enough in, in really looking at their operations and how do they improve.
0: And a final question on the workforce. You devote a lot of writing to the workforce issue. That seems like the most important thing really for career managers to deal with is yeah. workforce planning, which you know has not really been a strong suit for the government.
3: Yeah, good point. In fact, I I talk about eight solution functions to address, uh, you know, getting agencies to be more effective and efficient. And the the very first one is uh, the employees, the workforce. And to your point, one of the things in the model that I espouse, you you really, for key positions across the agency, and this isn't just the top managers, I mean, it could be at all levels. You really do need to define what we call the knowledge, skills, and abilities, the KSAs that go with a position and and develop learning paths and develop, if you will, career paths for individuals to effectively be able to fill key roles within an agency on the career side. And again, to your point, I, I just don't see it changing much. I've been involved closely with government for 20 plus years, and I hate to say it, but it doesn't look like we've made much progress in this particular area of human capital development across the government.
0: Well, maybe people will read your book and get after it. Richard Spires is former IRS and Homeland Security CIO, consultant, technologist, and author of Government Can Deliver. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, state chief information officers have a small but important to-do list for their federal counterparts. But first... From a venture capitalist, a volume on how government can use innovation out there in the economy. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A venture capitalist turned professor and business manager outlines the case for a new approach to how a fast-moving sector of the economy can help the government. Arun Gupta is CEO of the nonprofit Noble Reach, and he joins me now. Mr. Gupta, good to have you with us.
4: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: And you've outlined these ideas in a book, Venture Meets Mission. Tell us why this is just not another recitation of the uh, kind of old idea of, yeah, we need public private partnerships.
4: You know, in Venture Meets Mission, we're really trying to take our theory on the case is twofold. One, in um, great power competition, we need to attract better innovation around government. And the second, we need to get better talent around government. And in Venture Mutualtion, we lay out how we do that, primarily in addressing where we think the uh, innovation really resides, which is our entrepreneurial community. If you look at our tech entrepreneurial community specifically, it's probably our greatest superpower in our democracy. And we lay out that if we are going to, as we move forward, maintain our global leadership, we need to really think about how we harness that venture community around government missions. Traditionally, public-private partnerships have been around big government with big companies. And so really what we pose here is the notion of focusing on those nimble, innovative companies and how they collaborate with our larger government.
0: Now, the one thing about nimble companies, and sometimes companies are forced into nimbleness because as they age, they have to change and morph. I mean, look at the old Hewlett Packard. There's still a company by that name, but it's been atomized and scattered to the winds and pieces have grown up into new companies of their own total transformation of what, you know, those of us who were around 40 years ago remember was Hewlett-Packard. But then look at a other ancient program like, say, Social Security, which is not fiscally sustainable. Everybody knows it. Everybody in Congress knows it. Everybody in the Congressional Budget Office, all the actuaries know it. And yet, somehow, you need a venture-style way of not getting rid of the benefits, but looking at the whole program from the ground up and see how can we do this better, Is that the kind of thing that we can help with here?
4: You know, I think more what we're looking at trying to help with is not on the policy side itself, but is is bringing the enabling innovation to support whatever policy decisions are made. The Social Security example is obviously much more of a, a policymaker's issue. Having said that, once a policy is laid out, we still need access to the innovation that is the superpower of our country to be able to go execute. And what we're laying out there is that We need to create the pathways and scaffolding to support how government can interact with the entrepreneurial community in a more meaningful way. And that includes the entrepreneurs, the organizations, but also the VCs or financial backers that are supporting them.
0: So maybe a better example is the couple of weeks ago announcement from the Defense Department of the need for a program they're calling replication, which is the devising of swarms or squadrons or clouds of small, inexpensive yet interconnected and lethal drones or aerial vehicles that could somehow be used in conflict situation, a capability that the military simply doesn't have now, and it's not something they can wait to develop.
4: That's exactly right, Tom. There's a lot of these capabilities, and it's not only on the military side, this is on the healthy side. You look at economic security, you look at climate security right now across the board. A lot of the innovation is really happening again in the entrepreneurial community, and you know laying out those ambitions to how you connect those ventures in a seamless way in a timely way and understanding most importantly that look there will be some level of risk that needs to be taken on nothing is 100% guaranteed but that the risk reward trade off is better to be getting the velocity of innovation into government so that we can begin addressing these larger societal challenges
0: we're speaking with Arum Gupta he is a CEO of the nonprofit Noble Reach and a longtime venture capitalist and i think in your book there's a page that is a chart of the different organizing principles between public sector organizations and private companies. And that's really the crux here because the motivations, the organizing principles, what is rewarded and what is punished in the private sector and in government are almost diametric opposites sometimes. That seems to be the crux of the issue that you're trying to bridge here.
4: That is the crux of the issue. If you look at what we have that creates the difficulty in collaboration, it starts with a cultural difference. Obviously, Amy Ziegart writes about how uh, you know, you've know you got the hoodie versus suits culture, but we need to create kind of a shared language of how do we collaborate. In addition, you know the, the notion of risk is very different. In the private sector, we are encouraged to take risk, fail, fail quickly, so you can learn and innovate that's harder to do in government. Good friend Dan Tangerlini has a notion of like, in government, we have an IG, which is an inspector general. So every agency is worried about making a mistake because they're going to have to go in front of a congressional hearing. What if we had a second IG, which is an innovation general, which is if the agency isn't innovating fast enough, you could also be put in front of a congressional hearing. You know, So creating the right incentives so that there are reasons to be innovating and taking risks are what we need. In absence of that, Understanding what that collaboration could look like and how you can shift that risk into the private sector and the entrepreneurial community is what we talk about in the book. And so how we collaborate across this innovation, national innovation stack is, you know, some of the thoughts that we lay out.
0: And I wonder if some of this type of innovation can happen in a heartbeat to save programs where the policy has been determined. I'm thinking of the various spending fountains that really opened up in the advent of the pandemic. And we were trying to help individuals and the nation was trying to help companies and so forth. And now we're learning that pretty much at least a third of all that money, and we're talking trillions of appropriations are all debt, went to fraudulent claims or was misspent in one form or another, sometimes just you know, what they call improper payments, which can be fraud as a big part of it. Yet if they're industry is really good at detecting that kind of thing, maybe some overlay of industrial know-how of fraud prevention and spending controls and so forth, it's very technical how they do that, could have overlaid these programs early on, then everyone might have benefited more. That is, the people that were deserving of the help from the pandemic would have gotten it, and those that weren't like foreign people signing up and the money went right out of the country could have been prevented with the right kind of partnership.
4: No, I think that's right, Tom. I mean, I think, um, and this is where we go into using ventures as enabling technologies to support government actions as opposed to driving policy. The technologies exist to be able to do what you're talking about, but they needed to be rapid on-ramps for them to be embedded and included. We don't have that today. It's still you know, a very slow process. Having said that, it's getting much better, and you're seeing leaders in different agencies wanting to be very proactive with leaning into how do we tap into not only the innovation, but also the talent on these universities and thinking about inspiring youth to kind of come in for two, three years and not necessarily selling careers in government, but providing them great experiences in government, knowing that if they even leave, that there still can be ambassadors. And that's how we rebuild trust. A lot of where we are today is because the trust is broken down between government and the private sector. But that's primarily because people go into their silos and they stay there. Um, We need more of that cross-collaboration, and that's what we talk about.
0: Right. So there needs to be, I guess, it sounds like a balance of, I mean, career civil service is an honorable career, and people can do it for 30 years. And I've met dozens, hundreds of people over the past number of years that are career and stay flexible and stay in a contributing mode over that period of time. But there's also a place for people to come in, do some good, help the government, help the public purpose and then take that knowledge back out.
4: And I think what it does is it creates a more of a civic mindedness in those individuals. There's a greater appreciation of government actually at the end of the day is a a group of well-intentioned individuals trying to do the right thing. It's easy when you're not part of it to just think of it as one monolithic institution, but it's a collection of people. Once you're inside and you know who those people are, what their motives are, what the intent is, I think you leave with a much more favorable impression of how you can interact and how you can support the mission whether you're on in the inside of government or on the outside.
0: And do you have a prescription for fixing our politicians?
4: <laughs> I don't. I don't. I mean, we intentionally in the book stay away from the politics sure, side. Sure, sure. Um, as know, we, we actually, do here. We, we actually believe the venture and mission piece is a, hopefully is viewed, and we have found it to be viewed as a very apolitical issue with a lot of bipartisan support, in that I think two things that people do um, across the aisle agree on is that we need to get better innovation around government, and we need to get better talent. Around government, and we serve ourselves well by trying to inspire this next generation, which I think is looking to serve. I see it on the college campuses that I'm on and teaching, from pre-COVID to where they are now. You know, in their mind, they've had multiple existential threats: between a healthcare, you know, pandemic, a, a democratic scare, a um, you know, geopolitical scare in Ukraine. You overlay on top of that an environmental threat, and you know, the, the ongoing great power competition that we have with our adversaries. You know, I think students realize like this is a time for them to be able to serve. And what we were trying to do is rebuild those pathways to enable them to do so, um, while also having them maintain that it can be a career enhancer for them. They don't have to be signing up for a 30 year career in government, but they can start their career. This should be the place they start their career and then launch and decide if they want to go to a big tech company, a consulting, banking, or a graduate school program afterwards. And I think that we were overwhelmed. Just this summer with our internship program where we're looking for five students, you know, we had over 650 applicants. I mean, it was all around this notion around mission tech and entrepreneurship. Students are kind of craving that notion of mission meaning purpose, tech meaning innovation and entrepreneurship around creation and and building again.
0: Well, maybe a good place to close is the resulting virtuous cycle of venture meets mission ecosystem, something you've devised this idea of. Just briefly tell us what that is.
4: What we talk about at the end there, this is, I think, what gives me the most optimism and uh, excitement. Is that, And I think we're at the early stages, so we have a multi-decade run here. Is we're starting to see the first examples of companies really doing well that are venture companies that are serving the mission. When I got into this business 20 years ago, you were always told, don't invest do in anything that touches government. But with success stories now like Palantir, like Andrel, like Ginkgo Bioworks, and, and others across different domains, you know, Resilience, That VCs are starting to see real success stories. Once you see real success stories, you know, that brings more capital wanting to come into the ecosystem. And so you're starting to see a lot more capital formation to support mission-oriented activities. And this isn't just around defense tech, this includes climate, obviously, healthcare, agro, food tech. And as you see more capital coming into that ecosystem, you're seeing better talent come into the ecosystem. And once you start seeing better talent come into the ecosystem, you know, it feeds a, um, the ecosystem partners start to become more sophisticated, which then leads to more success stories. And so, I mean, at the end of the day, this is the story of Silicon Valley. You know, what people do forget is Silicon Valley started with an investment from our national defense infrastructure, and then they had successes. And those successes led to more capital and better people and more companies getting formed. And that is the cycle. And I think we're at the early stages of that cycle now with mission ventures. I do also believe that these larger opportunities can only be solved with for-profit ventures. Not-for-profits can only go so far, but at some point you need to be able to create that muscle memory whereby you become a self-sustaining entity, and that's where these for-profit ventures come in.
0: Arun Gupta is venture capitalist, CEO of the nonprofit Noble Reach, and author of Venture Meets Mission from Stanford Press. Thanks so much for joining me.
4: Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me.
0: And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, state chief information officers have a small but important to-do list for their federal counterparts. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. State chief information officers could advocate for a long list of changes they'd like to see at the federal level to make their life easier. Instead, the state CIOs focus on four priorities. And for what those are, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the director of government affairs for the National Association of State Chief Information Officers, Alex Whitaker. First on the list.
5: It's ensuring responsible implementation of the state and local cybersecurity grant program, Number two is expanding and strengthening the state wa- cyber workforce. That's a new one. Harmonizing disparate federal cybersecurity regulations and continued adoption. Uh, well, it's just what we say is continued adoption of .gov. So those are the four. Um, like I said, we have a new one this year, which is on workforce. We removed one from last year that was about broadband mapping. Not that we don't think broadband mapping is still important. It absolutely is. We just felt like we had really done kind of a lot of what we needed to do on that. Um, so we replaced it with workforce because there's a big push right now for uh, addressing the shortages in the cyber workforce field.
6: Disparate cyber federal regulations and adoption of the .gov domain, obviously are the, probably the sure. two big ones. Let me though take a half a step back. You, you mentioned just a little bit about, we hear from CIOs, CISOs. Every year, I love when NASIO does their survey as well. Does that also help drive some of those priorities or uh, is that kind of a separate survey that you come up with these advocacy ones? It's separate, but it
5: certainly helps to to drive these advocacy priorities.
6: The duck oven and the...
5: uh Disparate cyber regulations have been consistently a NASIO priority for like several years because of their importance and because there's kind of always work to do. I joke with my boss, Doug Robinson, that I, I've wanted to get rid of the disparate federal regulations, not because it's not important, just because, I, you know, we keep them in there. And of course, this is the year we've probably had more going on with that. So, you know, Doug Doug is the guru, as a lot of people who, who know NASIO will know, and he's usually right. So, uh Yes, but yes, the survey is incredibly important. Um, and I would recommend anybody who's uh, interested in what's going on in the stakes. Um, I think we're, we're working on it now. I think it'll be out in um, maybe a couple of months, if, if not less, probably less. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's an important tool for us as well.
6: So let's go through some of the regulations. You said the big one difference this year was the broadband mapping was taken off and the, I think you said, state cyber workforce was put on. Is that exactly. correct? That's and, correct. Uh, cyber workforce is one of those things that is... A struggle for every agency, every organization, commercial or public sector. Why did you kind of see this as a federal priority, though? Because each state has, if you will, their own ability to hire, their own ability to create the rules for how they hire. Why did you see this as an advocacy priority? The
5: states and the federal government are really facing identical challenges when it comes to workforce, cyber workforce specifically. Um, they're competing for the same people, yes, but also they've got they've got really interesting solutions to to addressing. So, so everybody's got kind of the same problem. We've also seen on the Hill a lot of interest in, uh, with um, a lot of congressional committees about looking at this issue, but there's really kind of no single silver bullet. There's no major comprehensive piece of legislation that's making its way through. So what we wanted to do is show, though, that states are really addressing this issue head on as much as they can, that states, as you said, states are unique and they're coming up with their own individual solutions and challenges. And we wanted to highlight that to our federal partners. But there are so there are some things that, that can be done that would help states as well, um, making sure that federal programs that are that, that states can access federal programs and monies and apprenticeships and that sort of thing, but also just really making sure that everybody knows that, hey, the states are working on this problem too. You know, there was obviously a component of the national cyber strategy, a separate component that looks at cyber workforce, which we, you know, have been really interested in as well. And it's just kind of highlighting what states are doing. Um, I think it's it's really interesting if you look at our If you look at our our cybersecurity workforce policy, there is no single um, solution in it that I'm including. No, it's it's not necessarily a money problem. It's not necessarily a, again, like I said, there's no silver bullet to fix it. Um, It is more just let's all work together. We've got solutions out there. How can we all sort of address this proactively?
6: And many times when you talk about this issue, a solution in Texas or California or New York could also apply to federal agencies. They can beg, borrow, and steal from each other. Maybe not one for one, but okay, a a playoff of, okay, they're doing this. Well, how can we address it? Is that the other goal maybe as well to, because it's such a major issue, uh, Mm -hmm. to highlight some of those things that the feds could, again, could, could borrow, beg, and steal from?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's the there's the the policy ones, right? I mean, there's a great program in Indiana called the Seal Program. In Indiana, one of the things they're doing is they're taking people who don't have a cyber or a tech background and they're getting them into the industry anyway by transitioning them and and helping them learn some basic skills. That's that's a great thing that some of the the, the federal government could do as well. They may be doing it in some situations already, but but these are just the kind of things that we're doing, seen in the states. But there's also kind of a, um, there's something that's not just so sort of policy. It's, um, you know, the, the quality of life um, working for a state agency. Maybe you're not making as much money as you make at Microsoft or Google, but you, you're, doing, you're doing great work to help your, help your fellow citizens. You're, you're working in, a, I think, a, a good, interesting field. Um, so there are those sort of kind of less tangible things that we want to highlight, too, which is also something the federal
6: government can do, too. You mentioned that there's not necessarily a solution to the cyber workforce. Maybe I'll put you on the spot here and see if you have an example of a state that's actually finding some success with the cyber workforce that you'd highlight to other feds or other agencies or other states. Yeah, well, I would just I,
5: I quickly sort of go back to Indiana. Just say that their their SEAL program is really interesting and and very cool. I would also, though, I'll take this opportunity to, to promote NASIO. We just put out a big workforce report that tackles all of these issues and is very prescriptive and and, and highlights some of those state solutions, which happy to follow up and send you to. But yeah, I, I think it's a combination, right? It's it's looking at the policies and the programs, like the seal program, but there's others. There's there's all kinds of them that are out there, and it's just selling the state. You know, selling the state to to prospective employees to say, again, okay, we may may not be able to pay you what you make somewhere else. But here are all the
6: great things that you can do. Alex, I appreciate you bringing up the NASIO Workforce Report. We we will make sure we link to it on federalnewsnetwork.com as well. Let's dig into some of those priorities that are very specific to federal agencies that they probably care a lot about. Cyber regulations and all the disparate nature of them is probably the first one. Talk a little bit about what the problem is, and then we can talk about what potential solutions are, or if maybe, again, like cyber workforce, it's more about awareness than actual solutions.
5: What it is, is we're calling it harmonizing disparate federal cybersecurity regulations. Um, And the issue is that states obviously have a lot of data of private citizens. and, And understandably, the federal government has certain conditions on which they need to protect that data completely reasonable. But the, the issue that kind of comes to head, though, is that a lot of these regulations are duplicative. They're very difficult for states to comply with. So what we're asking is that when it's possible that states kind of, as I say, I don't mean to be redundant, but harmonize them and make sure that, you know, if you're, maybe you don't have to submit three or four different sets of data or go through all these redundant security protocols in order to comply with with the federal government so it's just kind of it's making government kind of work a little better a little a little more efficiently kind of use the taxpayers money better so that's the issue at hand and we've got all kinds of sort of deep in the woods data on, on you know what it looks like but that's kind of the overarching issue and i think that one of the biggest problems is just kind of educating people about this because this is i will tell you this is one of those federal state problems that you start talking about it to sometimes Hill staff, and I've, I've been Hill staff, so I'm not impugning them, but eyes kind of start to glaze over. And, and it's not necessarily a, a fun or exciting problem, but it is one that takes up a lot of manpower on the state level to comply and a lot of money. And it, it can really kind of be the bane of existence for some state CIOs.
0: Alex Whitaker, Director of Government Affairs for the National Association of State Chief Information Officers, NASIO, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. Most federal agencies are just weeks away from imposing higher-in-the-office requirements. This comes with complications, though. Agencies also have to measure productivity to make sure in-office work actually makes sense. The House Oversight Committee is bearing down on a few agencies for some deeper data there. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman attended the latest hearing. She joins me now with more. And Drew, there's been a lot of back and forth on this for months. I keep calling it a tug of war. Why did the House hold this particular hearing?
7: So this was a subcommittee hearing, the Subcommittee on Government Operations and the Federal Workforce as part of the House Oversight Committee. And they're really wanting to look at a lot more data from federal agencies. So for a little bit of background, the committee sent a series of about 25 letters to agency heads a couple months back looking for deep data after they felt dissatisfied with what the Office of Personnel Management could offer. Now they've gotten the majority of responses from agencies to those letters. Just three agencies have yet to respond to the committee's requests, but the hearing that they held just this week was sort of a first-round look at some of that data. The, and the four agencies that were in attendance, Chairman Pete Sessions of the subcommittee called those that responded in good faith. So these are a couple good examples, I would say, of, of what the committee was hoping for from those letters. Chairman Sessions explained a little bit more about why he's taking that deeper dive into the data.
1: There was never really any evidence other than references to a survey of federal employees about what the impact was and about how the American public felt like they were doing business with agencies across the government. We believe and I believe that telework can be helpful to agencies to help them carry out their mission. It does not mean every single agency Would necessarily have that same success.
7: And that's Chairman Pete Sessions of the Subcommittee on Government Operations and the Federal Workforce. And Tom, the four agencies that were in attendance for this hearing were the Department of Homeland Security, National Science Foundation, NASA and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission.
0: That's good. So they got a mixture of big departments and smaller, mid-sized agencies and agencies with a niche mission. So interesting. Some of the witnesses did offer data, though, as you said, some examples. What were they talking about and what kind of data did they offer?
7: So we can take DHS for an example. During the COVID-19 pandemic, they had about 64 percent of their workforce that continue to work in person. So a big chunk of their workforce never went home. They do have a lot of front-facing positions where telework is just not possible for much of DHS's workforce. Uh, But after the pandemic, their most recent data as of July 2023, about 73% of DHS employees report in person every day. So it has gone up a little bit since the end of the pandemic. And then if you look at even employees at DHS who aren't necessarily reporting every day in person. You still have 85% of DHS's nationwide workforce going into the office or reporting on-site at least 50% of the time. So all of that comes from DHS's payroll data. So they are able, like many other agencies, to take that more granular look at the data, and then that's the, the numbers that they gave to the committee just this week.
0: And the witnesses also said that this whole situation is fluid, and that their plans could change, and what are some of the plans? Did we find that
7: out? Right. A lot of agencies have been announcing these return-to-office changes over the past couple of months, and these are going to be taking effect this month, September, as well as in October. So for example, the National Science Foundation, they're one agency that is actually increasing in-person work. In late October is when they're going to be starting to do that. They're moving from 2 days per pay period and pay per- periods are 2 weeks up to 4 days per pay period for all of their employees. And National Science Foundation Chief Operating Officer Karen Maringel explained what she hopes to get out of that in-person work. During those days, our employees are expected to collaborate, work together, uh, do the types of mentoring, network building within the agency that is more difficult to do when they are not on site.
3: And so why is four days the the, the correct number in order to be able to collaborate with one another?
7: Well, unfortunately, there, there is no exact science that points to a correct number. We know that it needs to be more than what we, are, we feel like it needs to be more than what we have now, which is two days per pay period, and so we're moving to four
0: Yeah, somewhere between never and always being in the office is the right amount, I guess. And, you know, in the House, this has been kind of a partisan divide. And yet Pete Sessions, who is a Republican, seemed open minded about telework. So is it a total partisan divide? Sounds like maybe not
7: right? If you heard him earlier, he did say that telework isn't necessarily all bad and it really depends on the individual agency. That's something that actually there is a little bit of bipartisan overlap here between Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, he did mention that the Show Up Act, that's the bill that Republicans uh, in the House passed mostly along party lines earlier this year, that he pointed to the fact that that wouldn't actually you know, completely eliminate telework for federal employees, but simply reduce it back to pre-pandemic levels. That has gotten a lot of negative attention, that bill, but he did kind of emphasize here that it's not, at least from his perspective, maybe this doesn't apply to every single Republican out there, but for him, you know, telework is something that can still be a tool. And actually, Representative Jerry Connolly, who was another subcommittee member, commended the, the chairman as well here.
0: You made a really thoughtful distinction that I want to reemphasize between universal remote working in a pandemic and a structured telework program. Those are two very different things. And I really appreciate the chairman making that distinction. Yes, sir. Not all of our colleagues do. We need telework. We need telework for lots of reasons. Oh, shucks. That was nice. <laughs> nice exchange between the two. And so now the committee has at least data from four agencies. They've heard testimony, what are they going to do next?
7: Next, they are going to hold another hearing in just a couple of weeks. They haven't said which agencies will be testifying, but they are going to have a couple of agencies who they said they are unhappy with the data that they provided. So we're going to see maybe a little bit different conversation in the weeks to come from from the subcommittee here.
0: Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.